This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm John Dickerson in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation. Back from his trip abroad, President Biden returns home to face familiar problems. The symbolically neutral Switzerland was the site of the first summit between a U.S. president and a Russian leader in almost three years. The scenery, spectacular. The atmosphere, chilly. President Biden says he did what he came to do, put Putin on notice about Russia's escalating aggression, particularly with what's increasingly turning into a new Cold War. We have significant cyber capability. And he knows it. He doesn't know exactly what it is, but it's significant. And if, in fact, they violate his basic norms, we will respond. We'll talk to the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, and we'll hear from Fiona Hill, the former National Security Council official who was present at the last meeting between U.S. and Russian leaders. Then, as we plunge into summer, the country is reopening, but closing down the virus in some regions remains a struggle. Unfortunately, cases and hospitalizations are not going down in many places in the lower vaccination rate states. With more than 600,000 Americans now dead from COVID-19, new mutations on the rise, and the vaccine rate slowing, what does this mean for the return to normal? We'll check in with former FDA Commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Plus, is it time to go back to the office, or is remote work here to stay? We'll talk with author Daniel Pink. Finally, a look at gathering history as it happens. History is not about yesterday, but it's about today and tomorrow. With the head of the Smithsonian Museum's Lonnie Bunch, he'll tell us why it's important to collect now for the sake of later. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We begin today with the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Congressman Adam Schiff. Good to have you here in person. Yes, thank you. It's a rarity, but hopefully one that won't be so rare in the future. Let's start with cyber attacks. Um, there's been a lot of cyber activity recently. The Colonial Pipeline, the largest in the country, the largest meat pro producer. How good is our intelligence in understanding and knowing the, the scope of these threats? Well, our intelligence is very good, but it's not predictive. Uh, so we seldom have insight about who's going to attack us and when, when it comes to these ransomware attacks. Uh, but we're pretty good at developing attribution. Uh, but of course, that doesn't prevent the injury from taking place. Um, I do think that a lot of these hacking groups operating on Russian soil, some of them operating on Chinese or Iranian soil, they have a synergistic relationship with those states, which means we need to hold those states accountable 
for what these criminal gangs do uh, to attack our industry. How well do we really know where these are coming from? Because the relationship that you talk about, that synergistic relationship, might be the pretext for retaliatory action. So how, how, how well do we really know this is emanating from Russia and China? Well, well enough to both take action to disrupt uh, these attacks, disrupt the financing of these attacks and the, and the remuneration that they earn from these ransomware uh, efforts, but also to hold these nations accountable. Uh, and I think we need to develop an international uh, rule of the road where if a nation doesn't take action against cyber groups operating on its soil, um, we hold that nation responsible, which means we sanction that nation, which means we use that nation's resources to indemnify against any losses. So it's not credible for the Russians, to, for Red, President Putin to say, oh, I don't know. Where they no, it's not all credible. It's also not credible for him to suggest that, uh, that even if he knew they were operating on his soil, that he was powerless to do something about it. Uh, these criminal actors don't go after the Russian oligarchs. They don't go after the Russian state or Russian industry because they know they'd end up in a gulag somewhere. So they have easier local targets they could hit, but they don't hit them. Absolutely. So I'm interested in something President Biden said. He asked the Russians to, in the meeting with President Putin, he asked the Russians to imagine what could happen if a ransomware outfit, as he called it, sitting in Florida or Maine, took action to disable a Russian oil pipeline. It sounded a lot like the president was saying, that's a nice pipeline you got there. Shame if something should happen to it. I'm not sure that was exactly what he was suggesting, but I do think when he was saying Putin understands we have tremendous cyber capabilities, he was sending a message, we won't hesitate to use them uh, if we need to, to protect our industry and to protect our government. Uh, and that's an important message to send. Uh, I think a big point of the purpose of this summit was for Biden to say, here are some of my red lines uh, and don't expect to get a pass. As you look at the entire effort to stop these cyber attacks, you mentioned that we have pretty good ability to tell who did them or to chase after the person who did them. The president has asked companies to harden their targets. Is there a way in which intelligence now has to go on the offense or go on the offense even more than it has in this area? And if the U.S. is on offense in the cyber realm, does that mean we're entering an age of greater volatility? I think we do have to go more on offense, uh, and I, I think that means that when we identify cyber groups that are working in conjunction with foreign states, that we treat them as an arm of the state, uh, and that we use our cyber capability to uh, destroy or disrupt the infrastructure they're using, uh, to raid whatever funds they're accumulating from these uh, attacks. Uh, does that you know, yield to greater instability? Very possibly, um, because we would be taking action against foreign parties. Uh, but look, this is happening, and it's been happening for years and years, and what we have been doing thus far hasn't worked. Yeah. Uh, one of the hospitals in my district was ransomware attacked years and years ago, uh, and by then it was a pretty paltry amount in Bitcoin that they were required to pay, but since then the amounts have gone up, since then the sophistication of these groups has increased, they're outsourcing some of their technology, uh, and unless we get more serious, both about our defense, which has to be number one, but also our offense, we're going to see more of this. Going back to a conversation we used to talk about, which was another way in which Russia was destabilizing the United States, which was misinformation. We talked a lot about that in the past, but update us on, are they still meddling in our social media, still spreading pop propaganda? What's the state of Russian meddling in the propaganda front? They are still meddling. They are still trying to sow division and discord. Uh, I think that they may have been deterred somewhat from crossing further lines uh, during the last presidential election because they recognize that were Joe Biden to be elected, they would pay a price for it, and they have. 
Um, but that doesn't mean that they won't intervene in the next election. I think that we can expect they will use certain tactics like social media to help favored uh, candidates. But I do think they'll be a little more risk averse when it comes to very overt things like hacking institutions, dumping documents. Uh, they have to know that that would prompt a very serious response from this president, unlike what we had over the last four years. Speaking of elections, there was a new one in Iran, a hardliner elected. What did you, what did you make of that outcome? What I thought was most interesting, I mean, the outcome was predetermined. Uh, but what, what struck me was the fact that this was, I think, the lowest turnout in an Iranian presidential election, perhaps in history. Uh, Iranians voted with their feet by not showing up at the polls. Uh, and millions who did show up at the polls cast white ballots. That is, they didn't check off uh, a candidate for president. It was a protest vote to say you have essentially stripped of, uh, us of any choice of a more moderate uh, leader, uh, and instead it's just ratifying uh, who the supreme leader wants. So that to me was significant. It was a protest vote. And do you think that'll have any impact on our relationships with Iran? Well, I think that, that uh, we have a window of opportunity to re-enter the JCPOA before mm -hmm. Raisi takes office. There, there are advantages to Iran and to Raisi to having that deal that's going to be made. If the Supreme Leader is going to bless that, uh, to have that done on uh, Rouhani's watch uh, so that if it goes well, Raisi can take credit. If it goes badly, they can blame the prior regime. So I do think this gives us a window of opportunity now. But in the future, it looks like hardline Iranian uh, politics uh, and world uh, positioning for the foreseeable future. In the last minute or so we have left, I want to ask you about something that affected you personally. The Department of Justice under the Trump administration subpoenaed your email records. What's the latest on that? Uh, this is something I found out from Apple a month ago. Um, and that's one issue why I had, had to hear from Apple and not the Justice Department about what had gone on in the last four years. Um, the Inspector General is doing an investigation. I talked with the Attorney General about going beyond that. I think he really needs to do a wholesale review of all of the politicization of the department of the last four years. Uh, what happened to our committee, what happened to members of the press, that's just a subset. Um, the direct intervention by the president and the attorney general in specific criminal cases implicating the president like that of Roger Stone, one of his aides whose sentence was reduced before he was pardoned. Uh, Mike Flynn, another uh, presidential national security advisor whose case was made to completely go away. These are gross abuses of the independence of the Justice Department, and we don't know how far they, they run, and uh, our new Attorney General has to find out. All right, Congressman Schiff, we're out of time. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. And we'll be back in 60 seconds with Dr. Scott Gottlieb and a lot more Face the Nation. Stay with us. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas, and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customize paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. The U.S. passed a grim milestone this week. 600,000 lives lost due to COVID-19. That's one death for every 550 Americans. 
And with the dangerous Delta variant on the rise, experts say getting vaccinated is more important than ever. Our senior national correspondent, Mark Strassman, reports from Atlanta. No, no, never. Vaccine hesitancy, vaccine hostility. On summer's first day, every state reports plunging rates of first shots, like Louisiana, with America's second lowest overall vaccination rate. Variants continue to pop up and to spread. The Delta variant, now identified in 41 states, looks menacing. It's the most contagious corona strain to date. Sometime next month, the Delta variant could become America's dominant COVID threat. The variant could win this race if we do not increase the proportion of people in the state who are fully vaccinated more quickly. Especially in states like South Carolina. Its vaccination rate ranks in America's bottom 10. Dr. Brennan Traxler directs public health here. As weather warms up, people may be going inside to air conditioning. That's why everybody needs to be vaccinated. The Biden administration keeps pushing to make its goal. 70% of American adults with at least one shot by July 4th. But unless the pace of vaccinations more than doubles every day until then, we're not going to make it. Another sign of the times, help wanted. It's a nightmare right now. As America reopens, employers can't find help. America has 9.3 million open jobs right now. One reason, nearly 4 million people quit their jobs in April, the highest quit rate in 20 years. It's hard to hire people. You, you can interview people, but they're not coming back later on. Smaller staffs has meant smaller menus in some restaurants. Telling a guest that we're out of chicken, it's just a sentence I never thought I would say, but it's we legitimately just couldn't get the chicken. This weekend, eight more states cut off extra federal jobless benefits, hoping to fill some of those open jobs. Health officials like to say that COVID should not be about politics, but vaccine resistance is both political and personal. Here in Georgia, the vaccination rate is well below the national average. And the two groups who most say no to shots, people of color and white Republican men. John. Mark Strassman, thank you. We turn now to former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He is on the board of Pfizer and author of an upcoming book, Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic. He joins us from Westport, Connecticut. Good morning, Dr. Gottlieb. Good morning. Let's start with that goal. Uh, President Biden said 70% of American adults by July 4th, he will miss that. Is that important that he missed it? Put that in context for us. Well, look, the administration set a stretch goal and they're going to miss it by a little. I think as a practical matter from a public health standpoint, it's not going to have an impact whether we hit 68% or 70%. The reality is we are vaccinating a large portion of the American population. We have to remember where we started and where we are right now. It took us a full month to vaccinate, to fully vaccinate the 1.34 million residents of nursing homes. In the next five months, we vaccinated 300 million people. We delivered 300 million vaccines. So it's a substantial achievement. I think we need to think about where, where we go next. Right now, we are on sort of 
um, 1.0 in terms of making vaccine accessible. And the goal was to open up mass vaccination sites, make it accessible in the community for people who wanted to go get vaccinated. They can go to a point and access a vaccine. Now we need to think about trying to push out the vaccine into community sites where people could get it delivered to them through a trusted intermediary. That's going to mean doctors, offices, schools, places of employment. We need to think about a different vaccine delivery strategy to get the people who are still reluctant or who still face challenges getting into those access sites. I think there's vaccine administration is going to decline over the summer as prevalence declines. People aren't going to be seeking out a vaccine in July and August. But as people contemplate going back to school and back to work in the fall, they will be seeking out vaccines. And I think that's when we need to think about that 2.0 campaign and a different strategy for delivering vaccine to those who remain unvaccinated. So if the 2.0 campaign has to meet people where they are, if they've been reluctant, that's one part of it. Is another part that might induce people to get a vaccination the, the Delta variant um, in, and that it appears to be hitting in areas, not surprisingly, where people have not been vaccinated? Yeah, I think that that's right. This variant's probably 40 to 60 percent more infective, more contagious than the 117 variant, that UK variant that became prevalent in the United States and caused that surge in the late spring. It doesn't necessarily appear more pathogenic, meaning more dangerous, but it's infecting people more easily and it's starting to become very prevalent in the UK in communities that are unvaccinated. So kids, for example, young people seem to be the population that's spreading it in the United Kingdom. And when we look across the United States, we see wide variants in terms of vaccination rates. Some states like Vermont or Connecticut have very high vaccination rates, above 80 percent. Other states are struggling to get to 50 percent. And when you look at the modeling that's circulating right now among epidemiologists about what we face in the fall, they are predicting that in a scenario where we only get to about 75 percent of the eligible population vaccinated and have a 60 percent more transmissible variant, which this new Delta variant may be 60 percent more transmissible than 117, they do show an upsurge of infection and reaching a peak of around 20% of the infection that we reached last winter. So about 20% um, of the peak in January, we will hit in, in the fall at some point. I think that's probably an aggressive estimate. I don't think it'll be quite that dire. But when you do look at those estimates, you see it varies widely between states. So Connecticut, for example, where I am, shows no upsurge of infection. But Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, Missouri show very substantial upsurges of infection. And it's based entirely on how much population-wide immunity you have based on vaccination. So another reason to get vaccinated might be what we're learning about the long COVID or the long-term effects of COVID. You mentioned the, the UK uh, and their results with or they're struggling with the Delta variant. There was a UK study about uh, brain tissue. What did that show this week? Right. So the UK um, does very good uh, perspective studies of people. They have a biobank where they follow people over time and they take blood samples and do MRIs. And they basically do that over many years to be able to go back and look and say, were there things that we could have seen in an MRI or a blood test that could have predicted an outcome that someone developed five or 10 years later? A lot like our Framingham Heart Study. So they went back to that biobank and they looked at people who had had MRI scans of their brains in the past three years. And they looked at how many developed COVID and about 300 people, a little over 300 people developed COVID. And when they compared those individuals who developed COVID against matched controls, people who were similar, who didn't develop COVID, they saw a pretty persistent um, decline in certain brain tissue matter. Certain areas of their brain showed a decline in actual tissue, a shrinkage of parts of their brain. 
It's not clear um, how the virus caused that. It's not clear if the symptoms of the virus could have caused it or, or it was a direct effect on the brain. But it's very concerning because it does suggest that the virus could be having a direct effect on certain portions of the brain. And if parts of the brain that showed the shrinkage actually are responsible for things like taste and smell and memory, the kinds of conditions, the kinds of complaints that we see COVID patients having after their recovery, they're still complaining about difficulty with smell or taste or problems with memory. So this is concerning. And I think what it suggests is that the balance of the information that we're accruing does indicate that COVID is a disease that could create persistent symptoms. There's this long COVID. Some people clearly have persistent symptoms after recovery, and it does appear to affect the neurological symptom system, both the brain and perhaps the autonomic nervous system. You see people with persistent tachycardias, persistent um, fast heart rates, for example. That could be explained by some, in, some damage to the nervous system. So this isn't a benign disease. This is something you want to avoid. And the bottom line is we have the tools to avoid it through vaccination. In the last 40 seconds, another tool that might be online is uh, the Biden administration announced a $3.2 billion investment in experimental antiviral drugs to treat COVID-19. What do you think about that? That's right. And I think that this could be a real game changer. This is a virus that we should be able to drug. The machinery that this virus uses to replicate are... Um, things that we've drugged before. It's not, a, it's not a very wily virus. It's not a virus that should evade our drug development tools. So I think that we will have a drug that inhibits viral replication. Pfizer, the company I'm on the board of, is working on one. Merck is working on another one in advanced development. There's a number of other companies also engaged in this pursuit. Mm. I think we will get a drug that inhibits viral replication, could be taken on an outpatient basis, and is basically like a Tamiflu for coronavirus that you could take when you first have symptoms, when you first have a diagnosis, right. to prevent the progression to disease. All right, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, as always, we're very grateful that you're here. This summer, American companies and their employees are thinking about and making plans to return to the office. To help us understand what that process might look like, we're joined by best-selling author Daniel Pink, who writes about business and human behavior. Good morning. Good morning, John. Dan, I want to start with, it feels like there's kind of a blank sheet of paper that business and employees have after this pandemic. So what do you think employers and employees should be thinking about about the new work world uh, as we come out of the pandemic? Well, I mean, I think this, the paper is somewhat blank, John, but I, I think we have some initial scribblings on it. If you think about this, um, for years, companies said we can't have widespread remote work. Why? Because the technology won't work and people will shirk. And then in about four days, tens of millions of people converted that to that way of working and proved that they could be trusted. Productivity went up. And so I think that what we're gonna see coming out of this is not a return to 2019, but actually a fundamentally new configuration of work, uh, even a new configuration of what an office looks like. What did we learn about remote work that we were wrong about or that people were wrong about when they previously thought people couldn't handle it? We were completely wrong about, about productivity and about trust. It turns out that most people in the workforce, you can trust. And I think that's an enduring lesson of this. And if we go back, as some CEOs are saying, saying, you know what, it's been a fun little experiment, everybody, but you better be back in the office or else, uh, or else you're gonna get fired. I think that is, is tone deaf and a massive misreading of both the moment and the market. So we learned about trust. We also learned that, that some face-to-face -face interaction is essential but not all face-to-face -face interaction is necessary every single day. And I think what we're gonna end up with on the other side of this is an enduring form of hybrid work. 
You mentioned what some CEOs are saying. Um, at Morgan Stanley, the CEO said, if you can go to a restaurant in New York City, you can come into the office, and we want you in the office. So does that, um, it, 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 is that going to stick, or might some people who couldn't work at Morgan Stanley say, you know, I'm going to go somewhere else? You know, I think that, John, that kind of comment from uh, the CEO of Morgan Stanley, I think in honor of, of Father's Day is going to earn him a massive eye roll uh, throughout the workplace. First of all, people can be trusted. You have to default to autonomy so that people can, can configure the work the way they want to. It's also, especially for a finance CEO, a massive misreading of the market. What we have now is we have 5.8% unemployment rate, 3% unemployment rate for college-educated workers. As your earlier package said, we've got the highest quit rate in this entire century. And so when, I think when a lot of talented workers hear that kind of comment, they're going to say, OK, Boomer, I'm going to go work for Citi. I'm going to go work for some other bank. <laughs> All right, Dan Pink, hold on just a second. We're going to take a commercial, and we will be right back with Dan Pink. Stay with us. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Welcome back to Face the Nation and our conversation with author Daniel Pink. So, Dan, we were talking about what was discovered uh, about work during the pandemic for those who could work at home. What, what's your read on the essential workers who couldn't work at home, who had to go into the office? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to really, as a country, uh, both as, as consumers, as businesses, and as leaders, pay off on that word essential. I mean, we pay lip service to it, but I think that one of the most important things we can do coming out of this pandemic is to really focus on the dignity of, of work. And dignity means decent wages, dignity means safe conditions, dignity means an opportunity to grow. Um, and I, I feel like among the enduring lessons of that, of this pandemic, is that we have a, a two-tier workplace. And that's, not gonna, that's, that's morally indefensible, and it's also economically unsustainable. And in whose hands do you think that uh, moral obligation rests? I mean, we see so much of what's happening in Washington, but do you see any businesses yeah. and is it in their interest to answer some of those issues you say have been raised by the pandemic? I think that there are some. I think there's I think it's I think it's a collective issue, John. I don't think it's like it's the job of any single institution or any any single person. I mean, I think part of it comes to us as consumers um, uh, and, and as uh, uh, for instance, simply treating essential workers well, saying thank you, respecting their work, honoring their work, but that's not enough. And you have some companies now moving toward higher wages in part because of labor market pressures. You have some companies, not a lot, moving toward subsidized daycare because one of the other legacies of the pandemic is that four million American women dropped out of the workplace. We only have about half of them come back in the workplace right now. So one of the, one of the interesting things about this moment, and I think we should consider it a moment, is that it reflects a turning of the page of this country. And, and when we turn the page, we have an opportunity to write the story afresh. And I, the most important story that we can write in the U.S. workforce is ensuring truly that every job has dignity, decent wages, safe conditions, and an opportunity to grow. 
to the extent that workers are moving around and we hear stories about people just saying, look, I want a better quality of life, do American workers yeah. have to become more entrepreneurial in selling themselves because they're you know, going to be going into this new workforce? Uh, I think that's a very good point. I, I, th I think that um, at, at some level, a lot of the risk and a lot of the responsibility, especially in the last 50 years, has, has gone from organizations to individuals. We're now responsible for navigating our careers. We're increasingly responsible for managing our education and training. Uh, certainly the world of retirement savings has put more of an onus on people. And so, and so yes, I, I do think that it's smart for most workers to consider themselves, to think of themselves as entrepreneurs, as navigators of their own career. Now, that's easier for some people, harder for other people, which is why we need to give everybody a platform where they can, where they can flourish. When you and I last spoke, your book, uh, When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, had come out. And it felt like to me during this pandemic, with so many people working at home, where every day felt like Tuesday, um, that, that, <laughs> that figuring out the time you spend during the day was a challenge for all of us. Did you learn anything about timing during this pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the, I think we, there, there are two important lessons there. One of them is is that structure can be liberating. It sounds like a Zen koan, but it ends up being true. That when we have a lot of autonomy and freedom to configure our schedules, it actually helps to have some amount of structure. That structure can liberate us. The other thing, which I think is really urgent, when you look at some of the numbers about burnout, even some of the numbers about depression and anxiety, are the importance of breaks. John, we have a huge amount of evidence. That, that breaks should be part of our performance rather than a deviation from and our performance. And so if we, start, uh, if we start encouraging people to take more breaks, I think people will be happier and more productive. While major world powers are in talks to revive the 2015 nuclear deal with Iran, there's soon to be a new player in the negotiations. Ibrahim Raisi, a hardline judge, secured a landslide victory in Iran's presidential election. Our senior foreign correspondent Elizabeth Palmer reports from Tehran. Ibrahim Raisi may be a newcomer on the world stage, but inside Iran, he's already a well-known figure. Last night, his supporters came out to celebrate his victory. Head of the judiciary and a protege of the supreme leader, Raisi talks the talk of a veteran regime insider. I thank almighty God for the people's trust, he said. But it wasn't so much people's trust that got him elected, rather a stage-managed process that virtually guaranteed he'd win. It looked legit, with TV ads reassuring voters that polling stations would be COVID-safe and candidates' debates. But with the backing of religious authorities, Raisi was a shoe-in. That said, turnout was the lowest in history. Fewer than half of eligible voters cast a ballot. <laughs> no. Layla wouldn't tell me who she voted for. You won't tell me? <laughs> no. But like so many people, she is fed up with the grind of life under U.S. sanctions and sees better relations with America as a way out. So you would like to see Mr. Biden and Mr. Raisi connect? Why not? Here's why not. Raisi, who's already under a Trump-era sanction for alleged human rights abuses, is allied with the Revolutionary Guards. Enemies of the U.S. and backers of Hezbollah designated a terrorist organization by Washington. Bath one's turning inbound. Also in command of the Iranian Navy boats that harass U.S. warships in the Persian Gulf. But there is one area of probable cooperation, a revived nuclear deal with the U.S. and its allies. 
Raisi has said he will respect it, in part because he'll benefit politically if Iran's battered economy gets a boost from the lifting of American sanctions. Negotiators have been working on the final wording of a deal that the Iranian side says could come in a matter of weeks. John? Liz Palmer in Tehran, thank you. We want to take a closer look at what that U.S.-Russia summit accomplished last week. Fiona Hill was the National Security Council's senior director for European and Russian affairs during the Trump administration. Good morning. Morning, John. Dr. Hill, I want to start with news this morning that the, the U.S. is preparing new sanctions against Russia over the poisoning of Alexei Navalny. What do you make of those sanctions? Well, those are actually obligatory because Navalny was poisoned, as we all now know, with Novichok, which is a banned nerve agent, uh, essentially an illegal chemical weapon. It's the same substance that was used in uh, a different form uh, against Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia in Salisbury back in uh, 2018, which uh, some people might recall. And on that same occasion, it also triggered a similar uh, set of sanctions and other responses. The Russians undertook to actually destroy all of their chemical weapon stockpiles. But of course, as we've discovered, they kept a lot of these novel um, agents, probably betting on the fact that they were so secret and so highly classified uh, when any Western governments knew about them that nobody would ever actually uh, get to the bottom of uh, the use of this substance and certainly wouldn't divulge it. But they were caught out when they used the same thing against uh, Skripal in Salisbury. So, you know, they were at it again. So would this have been something that President Biden would have brought up in the meeting with Putin? Or is it something kind of because it's automatic, uh, kind of is outside of their of the exchange of carrots and sticks? Well, I don't think it's outside of the exchange. And President uh, Biden, by his own account, did raise Alexei Navalny and uh, not just his poisoning, but the fact that he is now in jail, having returned to Russia after recovering in Germany. And, uh, you know, the Russians were already put on notice that uh, the death of Navalny uh, would be seen as a really serious event that would uh, basically get some responses as well. So I think, you know, the Russians were certainly forewarned and, you know, probably well aware that uh, these sanctions were coming. Speaking of forewarnings, President Biden uh, presented President Putin with a list of 16 areas in infrastructure. And he said they were off limits to cyber attack. And then I was interested, the president said this, I pointed out to him that we have significant cyber capability. And if, in fact, they violate these basic norms, we will respond with cyber. So was essentially President Biden saying that's a red line, cross it and we retaliate? Absolutely he was. And, you know, we've made those red lines clear in the past to Russia on a number of fronts, not just in cyber, but also in the military realm. And there have been some red lines that when the Russians have crossed them, we have responded. I mean, the important point is to make that response credible. So it's not so much that we're telegraphing it publicly, but that, you know, some response happens behind the scenes. There's a clear message sent to the Russians that they understand this. I think the dilemma is, you know, not being... Not, entirely comprehensive and your, your list of what's uh, off limits. Because what the Russians are, they're very much testing the guardrails at all points, they're testing the limits. So I think we can also expect that there might be some covert uh, action that might go beyond those 16 areas that are off limits, perhaps ransomware attacks, criminal attacks, something that's hard to attribute. And then we're going to have to go back to them with additional lists of things that are off limits as well. So this is going to be a back and forth, I suspect. Speaking of covert uh, information, do you think, since you're so familiar with these kinds of meetings, that President Biden would have said to President Putin privately, 
uh, given him some evidence of what the U.S. knows and proof that the U.S. has, not only about what Russia has been doing, but about how far our reach of retaliation could have been. Privately, uh, would he have shared that kind of information to back up his threats? I don't think that he would have said something quite explicit because, look, there's a real concern that the Russians can get ahead of everything that we're wanting to do. I mean, that's why people are very cautious about talking to the media because Putin is the master of preemption. If he thinks he's going to do something, he'll get ahead of it, he'll head that off, or he'll do something himself that then will require some other different form of retaliation. But look, our militaries have been very effective at this. We've had a long-standing channel between the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, of Staff General Milion Alpart, before that was it was General Dunford, with their counterpart, General Gerasimov. And we've been very clear that if something happens in the military realm, we will respond. And that did happen in Syria in 2018, when Russian paramilitaries were pretending to be Syrian rebels and shot in our forces. And there were very heavy casualties in their side after there was a US response. That's the kind of message that you send. You do it privately. It doesn't have to be the president. It can be at the professional level by intelligence operatives or um, envoys or you know, our, our military officers. And then they see the response and then the message is reinforced. So again, it's, it has to be very carefully calibrated. But I think that President Biden, by sitting opposite Putin, looking him in the face, as he said, and then being very clear about what the red lines are, is already setting the tone for next sets of meetings, which I would imagine will be at the other professional levels in the U.S. and Russian governments. The, world, the word Cold War gets thrown around a lot. Can you characterize whether that's applicable with respect to this cyber uh, dance that is going on? Or how should we really think about the nature of that conflict? Well, the cyber war is a hot war, same with the information war, because actions are already happening, right? I mean, we know that the Russians have had this massive penetration of our systems, the solar winds hack. Uh, we've seen that they have interfered in our election by trying to get onto critical systems. We've already seen all these ransomware attacks, which you know many of us suspect have been criminals for hire, or at least have not been reined in by Russia, which is you know tantamount also uh, to um, certainly allowing attacks uh, to take place on you know everything from pipelines to hospitals and other systems. And in terms of information war, I mean, we know that the Russians have been out using social media platforms, all kinds of propaganda. So we're already there. I mean, what we're trying to do is try to rail that back uh, and uh, to basically rail that back, that is, and try to get some kind of restraint here. So we're basically, uh, I guess now, with the dilemma of how do we do that? Can we get a comprehensive cyber agreement like we do in uh, the nuclear weapons realm? Or is that just going to be too difficult? All right, we'll have to leave it there, Dr. Hill. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much, John. Thanks for having me. And we'll be right back in a moment. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Late Thursday, President Biden signed a bill that made June 19th a federal holiday, and it went into effect on Friday. Juneteenth is the day in 1865 that the last slaves were notified that they had been freed under the Emancipation Proclamation, which had been signed two and a half years earlier. The process of making Juneteenth a holiday followed a similar timeline. 
long advocated for and privately celebrated, but the final stage was brisk. We asked the secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, Lonnie Bunch, to reflect on the importance of Juneteenth. Juneteenth is really a special moment. It's a moment that is really the first holiday we have that celebrates freedom. Um, that is really about helping us understand the fragility of freedom, the importance of freedom, and the struggle for freedom. There's always been this moment, but to suddenly say this is really about helping a nation remember something that it often doesn't want to remember, and helping a nation honor those people who were enslaved, but they believed in an America that didn't believe in them. Um, this is a special moment for me, so I'm very emotional about Juneteenth. You've dealt with the federal government. Were you surprised how fast this happened at the end? I'm always surprised when things move quickly with the federal government. I think what it tells us is the impact of the last year, of people recognizing that issues of race are not owned by a single community, but rather they shape us all. And I think there was a, a profound sense that it was important to remember that America as a nation has grappled with some of the great, some of its most difficult moments and has made effective change. So this is both a celebration of change, um, a celebration of freedom, a celebration of a community, and quite con candidly for a historian, it's a wonderful embrace of the importance of history. There is a grappling with how to tell and how much of the story to tell about slavery that was knit into the very beginning of the country. How do you look at that debate and where it stands? I believe strongly that you cannot understand America without understanding slavery. Um, that our notions of freedom, our notions of liberty, are juxtaposed with our notions of enslavement. Um, and so I think that it's not about pointing blame. It's not about um, remembering difficult moments just to hurt. What it is about is to say a great nation understands itself, understands itself in, in a complex way. And by not grappling with slavery, we are really not telling not only a true history, but we're not telling a truer story of ourselves. The debates show that history is not about yesterday, but it's about today and tomorrow. Um, and so what I'm grateful for as a historian is the opportunity to teach, to share these stories, to share these histories. Because I have to be honest, when you look at the story of slavery, one of the things that always struck me is that there were people in many communities didn't want to talk about it, were embarrassed by it. But I'll tell you, I wish I was as strong as my enslaved ancestors. Mm -hmm. If I was as strong as they were, what a world we could make. And so I want us to honor that strength um, by remembering and telling their stories. Because a truer story is a more nourishing story. A truer story is a story that helps us do a couple things. It helps us as a nation embrace ambiguity. We far too often look for simple answers to complex questions, and slavery is nothing but complex. But it's also a, a way to understand notions of where people crossed racial lines to try to help the country live up to its ideals. You have people who sort of struggled for generations but believed that freedom was important. The thing that always, it always struck me as I did research on slavery is they'd always say that in the quarters, in the, in the small cabins, they were always talking about freedom. Yeah. It really was the sort of um, thing people believed in when they shouldn't have believed in it. Let me move now to the present day. What are the museums here collecting today for tomorrow? What I think is important for the Smithsonian is to recognize that we have to make sure 
that America remembers. And one of the ways to do that is to collect these stories, to collect these important artifacts so that maybe we won't even use them for the next 20 years, but somehow a curator or historian will be able to really look and say, January 6th is important. We recognize the need to have kind of what I call the rapid response team, um, to really think about, are there issues that are really important that we should collect? So whether it was January 6th, having people out there collecting posters and banners that people put together, but later collecting broken bits of furniture, things that reflected the damage, because I think that's an important story. How fast did that rapid response team get out there? Oh, they were out there within a day. You know, and so it was really important to do that. And we did that for many other things. And what we were able to do is to bring people together and both collect rapidly, but to collect in a way that was cognizant of the people that we were dealing with. So, for example, um, we collected a lot of the demonstrations around Black Lives Matter that happened down here in Washington, Lafayette Square. But rather than just go in and take everything, we worked with the community. We talked to people who were leading these demonstrations to say, we want to make sure we collect stories that reflect your points of view. Um, and so we left things up. Um, we didn't go in and just take because we want to be a fair partner. Right. And then we did the same thing with the pandemic. We knew that this notion of, you know, obviously America being shut down over a virus is crucially important. Um, I remember, you know, seeing pictures of the flu epidemic in 1918 and thinking, we need to make sure we document that. And so the brilliant staff collected amazing things. The, the first vial um, where the vaccine was given in New York City, they have that. One of the early nurses who got one of the early shots, we have her scrubs and her vaccine card. And Dr. Fauci gave us sort of a model of the coronavirus that he used. So the key is to think about how do you document today so that people who don't know this story will be able to understand it a generation, two or three generations from now. Is the goal not just to get an artifact, but to curate something that has embedded in it the meaning of the thing itself? Artifacts don't speak by themselves. And so if you collect the stories, if you work with community to understand why certain posters were so important to people, um, I think that gives you a richness that allows you to engage people, to bring history to life. We need to make sure that we're telling stories from multiple points of view. Now, it used to be with historians that you had to wait 50 years. George W. Bush used to say, I don't care, history will figure it all out after I'm dead. What, what happened to that view of history, or where does that fit in a world of rapid response museum collectors? I was trained that way. You know, you don't talk about anything unless it happened 50 years ago. I became a better historian when I began to talk to the living community. Mm. Um, and so it made me realize that if we collected things today, and talk to the community, there's a richness that that has, there's documents, there's facts that that has. So while I think there is something very powerful about having distance, um, I think it's also important to make sure that you have the stuff, you've collected the oral interviews, that somebody then can use 50 years from now with their own distance. But for me, it's about making sure we collect today for tomorrow. Has something changed about collection because we now have in our hands and these smartphones that are turning us all into curators and collectors. I think particularly, of course, of George Floyd, uh, the video of that. Um, how does that shape and change 
the job of the museum? It, it makes you realize that there are a lot of historians out there. Um, there are a lot of people that can capture images that can help us think about things in different ways. And I think this new technology has challenged us to be more flexible, to be more nimble, but it also allowed us to have more interaction with a variety of communities because, you know, they're not thinking about how this is going to be written in 50 years. They're thinking about what happened right that moment. And it's powerful to have that. Secretary Bunch, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. My pleasure. You can watch our full interview with Secretary Bunch on facethenation.com. We'll be right back. That's it for us today. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there and the grateful children making them dinner. We'll see you next week. I'm John Dickerson, and this has been Face the Nation. Today's guests were House Intelligence Committee Chairman and California Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, author Daniel Pink, former National Security Council's Senior Director for European and Russian Affairs, Fiona Hill, and Smithsonian Secretary Lonnie Bunch. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com. And you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 10.30 a.m., 1 p.m., and 4 p.m. Eastern, every Sunday. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.